Our reading this morning is from from Psalm 37, and if you're using the Church Bible, that's going to be found on page 563, page 563. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass that will soon wither, like green plants that will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he'll do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord loves the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the swords and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright. But their souls will pierce their own hearts, and their bowels will be broken. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of the many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not be there. In days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed, they will go up in smoke. The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but those he curses will be destroyed. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, or their children begging bread. They are all as generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. Turn from evil and do good. Then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithfulness. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouths of the righteous utter wisdom, and their tongues speak what is just. The law of their God is in their hearts. Their feet do not slip. The wicked lie in wait for the righteous, 
putting them to death. But the Lord will not leave them in the power of the wicked, or let them be condemned to be brought to trial. Hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Consider the blameless, observe the upright. A future awaits those who seek peace. But all sinners will be destroyed. There will be no future for the wicked. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and he delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Because they take refuge in him. Thank you. Please do take your seats. And uh, if you have a Bible, do have it open again at that Psalm 37, on page 563, if you're using uh, the church Bibles, that's page 563. As you uh, said, we're looking uh, through a series, picking out particular psalms, and we call it um, Songs to Make Your Heart Sing. They're songs of joy, and we're really picking different themes or circumstances or situations where perhaps joy might be obvious to us in a Christian life, and other times where joy may not. And I think this psalm, you've already detected from that reading that we've had, is a call to rejoice, even when the world doesn't seem uh, as it should be. So let's pray together, shall we, and uh, look at these words. Father in heaven, we we just look with eyes at the world, sometimes we do not see and understand how you are at work. We need eyes of faith, we need to have open Bibles, we need to understand your purposes and plans that will come to pass. So give us those eyes to see as we've sung already this morning, that we might indeed be those who stand on your promises and walk with you in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Times journalist Bernard Levin once announced in his newspaper column that he was setting off on a journey to Christmas Island. Uh, now, he was choosing uh, Christmas Island because Christmas Island is the most remote inhabited place in the world. And according to his article, just one ship arrived at the island, and at that only once a year. What's more, he said, I've already written to the postmaster on Christmas Island and asked them to burn any letters that should arrive with my name on it without even opening them. And I want you to ban all newspapers too. And then he told us why in his newspaper column. He said this, What you ask has brought this powerful urge to misanthropy. Why was Levin so committed to escaping from the world? Well, here was his answer. It is yet, it is that yet another bundle of papers from Amnesty International has landed on my desk. And after listing a catalogue of atrocities, he concluded with these words, how much wickedness can the world stand? This is not a cry of despair, but a wish to know, because I now begin to believe that at some point the world will be drowned in evil, and evil will rule the world. Very, very powerful a piece of journalism, but flick through those TV channels and it won't be long before you hear a story 
of more innocent suffering, more oppression and injustice in our world. And what makes evil so hard to stomach is that so often it is those who commit it who actually prosper from it. Corrupt dictators defy the world, accumulate their palaces, mock, imprison, and torture their own people. No wonder Bernard Lennon said, I'm sick of it. I've had enough. I need to escape. And this problem is an ancient problem. In fact, books of the Bible written thousands of years ago address the same cry of despair. Authors in the Bible write of these seemingly injustice within the world. The writer of Ecclesiastes sums up his own frustration in these words. He says, there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. And Job asks, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Well, injustice is all around, and it troubles us, doesn't it? It troubles us deeply, wherever and in whatever form it takes. In the West, we might be spared some of it, certainly. Mercifully spared more than others seem to suffer. Apparently, according to one recent survey, there are 27 million people in the world today who are slaves. 27 million, that's more than at any other time in human history. Inequality means that, staggeringly, as this may seem, the richest 62%, 62 people, the richest 62 people in the world have as much wealth as the poorest three and a half billion people. Countless numbers of people lost their homes and their livelihoods as a result of a global banking disaster 12 years ago, and yet not one person has ever been sent to jail. And we look at each other and we see these kind of statistics and we say, this is wrong. This is not the world as it should be. But have you ever stopped to think, why do we want justice? And can we ever expect to get it? Bernard Lennon doubted it. He feared the world would be overtaken by evil. And have you ever thought, where does God fit in to this question? I mean, after all, if there's an all-loving, all-powerful God, then this world seems to stand in stark contradiction to that kind of a God. Given this kind of a God, there's undoubtedly a tension between the world that we would expect him to make and the world that we see. And we say, well, where is he? And what's he doing? And I think Psalm 37 gives us something of an answer. But before we dig into that psalm, can, can I just stop with this question? Does removing God from the equation help us with these kind of problems? I mean, if we believe that there is no God, are we then out of the woods? I don't think so. See, there is a, there is a, there is a sorry, superficial attractiveness to atheism. There's no denying that superficially. It, it offers us a personal freedom, but unavoidably smuggled into atheism as a worldview is a dangerous concept. And it's called moral relativism. The Russian author Dostoevsky expressed it this way. He said, if God is dead, all is permitted. 
If there's no God, if there's no superintendent, if there's no one to whom we're finally accountable to, it's a free-for-all. Right and wrong are nothing more than matters of taste. Like choosing between ice cream flavors. All a matter of personal preference. So what would ever make kindness right and cruelty wrong if there was no God, no purpose, no design for our lives? I think actually atheism pulls the rug from under our feet when we cry and stand for justice in the world. The skeptic just laughs and says, what do you mean justice? And why would you expect it? And why should we even hold on to it? And what does it mean anyway? So whether we would call ourselves coming into the room here today at Christians or whether we're just people looking into these kind of things, your cry for justice and your desire that the wrongs of this world should be put right tells you something about how you think the universe should be. That it ought to be a moral universe. It's pointing you and I towards God, not away from him, that cry for justice. Just like pain receptors in your fingertips are a sign of a healthy body, so that aching of the human heart for justice is a, is a sign that we're seeking someone who will hold everyone to account. And that no one will escape. Even men like Stalin, who murdered 30 million of his own people and died in his bed, an old man. Well, let's turn to Psalm 37. And our psalm this morning asks a particular form of this ancient question. And the particular form that this psalm addresses is how can people of faith enjoy a relationship with God in a world that's filled with injustice? Why would God allow his own people to suffer and often his own people to experience more injustice than even the general population? I mean, this series is a series about joy in the Christian life, and the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, causing us to sing a song of joy, even in the face of injustice and oppression and persecution. Dr. Gina Zulu is the co-director of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, based at Gordon Conwell Seminary in the United States. And in a piece that she entitled, um, The World as a Hundred Christians, she and her team have calculated that if the church were, the global church was thought of as a hundred Christians, then of that global church, eleven would be illiterate, fourteen would have no access to water, five would have malaria, and a staggering seventy-nine, seventy-nine of those a hundred Christians would live in societies marked by either moderate or high corruption. So four out of five every Christians are living in societies where corruption is systemic. Moderately or highly corrupt countries. And they're trying to live for Jesus and continue to do good in that kind of a culture. It may not be such a live question for us, but for Christians around the world. And as we pray for the suffering church, as I hope and trust you do, I believe this psalm will help us. And as we also battle to understand and trust and hold on to a God who we believe is for us 
and not against us in a world where Christians are opposed, I think this psalm will help us. Psalm 31, sorry, Psalm 37 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, verse 1. Do not fret because of those who are evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. Rather, verse 4, delight in the Lord. That's the call. Don't fret. Delight in a world where the wicked hold all of the cards and the righteous are made to suffer all of the consequences. It's still possible, this psalm says, not only to believe in God, but to delight in God. Now, two things as we start out, because every psalm in the Bible has a sort of a unique place and a feel and a rhythm to it. Just two things to note about this psalm. Do you notice that God isn't addressed directly in this psalm? These aren't words to God, they're words to each other. So this is Christian speaking to Christian about injustice that God's people face, okay? So it's a psalm where we speak to each other. Secondly, the other thing that's unusual about this psalm is that it's what we sometimes call a proverbial psalm. And what that means is it's not like a a storyline with a beginning and then a plot and a resolution. It's not like reading through a novel. It's more like looking at a painting and being able to look at that painting from different perspectives and vantage points and seeing different things as you look at it. So the psalm doesn't have a plot or a storyline. It's more one idea. How is it that we hold on to God and trust him in a world of wickedness? And then from different perspectives gives us different answers looking at that one picture. Okay, that's how it works. So we're actually going to focus this morning on just the first 11 verses. Because it's not a plot line. We're not just starting a novel and finishing at chapter 3 with no idea what's going to happen. In one sense, it's a series of proverbs telling the same thing from different vantage points. And I hope that as you go home and maybe read and reflect on the longer psalm that it is right the way through to verse 40, that you'll spot that theme and be able to use what we've learned this morning to help you dig deeper and explore my first point is do not fret, verse 1. Bernard Levin was right. He had pretty hot under the collar. Fret here is a Hebrew word meaning heat up. And you know when you experience injustice, don't you immediately heat up when someone cuts in front of you? When you're in the car and you road rage begins to kick in, or someone uh, pushes in front of you to get on the train, and then the last one gets on the train, and the doors close, and you've got to wait 10 minutes. For the next train to get into it, but you immediately get cross and angry. You heat up, you burn with anger, we would say today, wouldn't we? But the psalmist says, don't, don't get angry, don't lose the plot. And it's so hard to stop ourselves. <coughs> but don't just get cross. In verse 1, don't become envious either. Don't you think sometimes, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So if he's going to cut corners at work or she's going to uh, massage the figures to make what she's done seem a little bit better, then, then I'll make a few exaggerations too in my monthly reports. It doesn't take much, does it, to, to look at the world and get cross, become envious and want to correct things. We're very easily affected by the prosperity of others around us, even when our neighbour gets a new car whatever else it might be. You know, immediately something goes on in our minds and our hearts, doesn't it? And we think, well, the evil men are getting their way, they're moving up in their careers, 
They're gaining power and prestige. They're using dodges and weaves and dealings to further their cause. It's really hard not to want to join in. And the reason that we shouldn't is there in verse 2. Because this is a moral universe. And God sees everything. And verse 2, like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. And, and what then? They may own a super-yachtal team. They may refuse to pay their taxes and have clever accountants who can get them off paying taxes. But they're like grass. They can't outrun God. They can't outlive God. Like green plants, they'll soon die away. Like the rest of us, they too are nothing but mortal. Jeff Bezos might be the richest man in the world, or is it Bill Gates? I'm not sure today or tomorrow. But I know this, these of them will be alive 50 years from now. They will have met their maker. In their boasting, the rich forget one thing, that they live on earth under God's just and sovereign rule. And they will meet him. So don't envy them. Don't envy Bill Gates, pity Bill Gates. He's soon to meet his maker, and I'm not sure he's ready. Appearances can be deceptive. Verse 1, we fret, we become envious. Verse 2, remember there is a day. And death will overtake them. And all of a sudden, that's deceptive, isn't it? It's a way of thinking again. Don't envy the wicked. Appearances can be deceptive. Very soon, everything they've plotted and schemed to acquire will be gone. Whether Stalin or Robert Mugabe or whoever else. No, you as a believer, verse 3, in the knowledge of God, trust in the Lord and do good. Do you see that, verse 3? Trust in the Lord. What is the answer to anguish and envy hot under the collar? Don't focus on the problem, but focus your heart and mind on the solution. That's the Bible's answer. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on the solution. Verse 3, trust God. He will hold everyone to account. And I guess the question is, what does it mean and what does it look like lived out for us to trust God? It's what we say to one another, isn't it, all the time, hopefully, helpfully. Let's keep on trusting in Jesus. I think at the very least it means this. Interpret the events of your lives and the events of other people's lives through the promises of God. Don't just take it as seen. Look through the filter of the gospel. That could mean a few things. It might mean trusting God means believing that God is my Father in heaven. Therefore, in his infinite wisdom, he has good reasons for allowing me to experience trials and hardship. Perhaps even injustice. Trusting God means that knowing if his purpose is to make me more like his son, then he knows what is best for me to make me more like Jesus. And that might mean trials and adversity. Trusting God means that even though there may be a lot of pain and heartache along the way, and I can't join all of the dots together, there will be a day when I'll look back and I'll understand. And I'll see what he was planning and purposing in and through my life. Just as Joseph could 
could say to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. There will, that will happen. There will be that day. Trusting God means holding on to all of these precious promises. Whether that's my friend battling depression, or another friend battling involuntary singleness, or a third friend who had to leave his wife and children and flee to the UK because all he wanted to do was tell people in his community about Jesus, and they didn't like it, and they started shooting bullets into the wall of his house. And he's trusting God now that he's here, and he was trusting God when he was back there. It's not always easy, but surely living this side of the cross makes it easier because we can see how God works through injustice to bring about his perfect plans. So what does it look like to be someone who's trusting God, verse 3? Well, the psalmist suggests four things that we're going to look at briefly between that statement, verse 3, trust God, and the end of verse 11. Are you ready? Number one, trusting God means continuing to do good. Rather than fretting, rather than becoming anxious or envious of others, you stand firm and live out your Christian life. That phrase, that idea of continuing to do good, runs all the way through Peter's first letter. Maybe you know that one, Peter. To do good, to do good. It comes up over and over again in that letter to a church that's been opposed and persecuted. Stand firm, live for Jesus, speak for Jesus, continue to do good where he has put you. When people around you have no time for God, and even though they're doing better than you are and advancing in ways that you can't, do good. You see, it's going to be the most natural thing in the world to think to yourself, what's the point of being a Christian? Why should I live for Jesus if this is where it gets me? Others seem to be having all the fun. Maybe you're at school. Maybe you're at university. And your friends mock you for your faith. They tease you because there are things that you won't do or things that you have to do because you're a Christian. And you don't fight back. You just continue to do good. Well, if that's you, it's a great way of showing you trust God. That there will be a day when he says to you, well done for that time when you stood up for me at school. That you decided it was worthwhile being mocked for being a Christian at work. Continue to do good. It will cost you in the short term. Continuing to put God first will mean sacrifice. It means giving up time that you would otherwise spend doing other things to encourage Christians. It means having a little less money in the bank than your neighbours because of what you give to church. But continuing to do good is what we're about, isn't it? And when the temptation is just that we're feeling worn down by it all, that's when we need to remember the gospel. And to remember all that God has promised us. So if you're in danger of someone of being someone who's stopping doing good, lift up your eyes and see the bigger picture. And as we continue to do good, so I trust and believe that our neighbours will see, and just as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, perhaps turn and trust in Jesus for themselves, because they see our delight to live for Jesus, even when we face opposition. But it's not just a call to do good, verse 3. Verse 4 
take delight in the Lord. Continue to do good. It's the first way we show we're trusting. The second one is to delight in the Lord. Alex Matia translates that phrase in his book on the Psalms, find your pleasure in the Lord. So it's not just kind of a willful determination to do good, even though it hurts, and that's the soul experience of the Christian. There's also a sense in which when the wicked take delight in their, in their goods or in their wealth or their reputation, you take delight to find your joy in the Lord. Go, he's the solution. Go to him. It sounds a little bit crazy, but that's where the true joy of the believer can be found. Do you remember these words from James chapter 1? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. How can your heart sin in the face of injustice? I think it's only if you can truly believe that God is at work in your suffering to make you more like Jesus. That God is purposely directing the path of your life for your good. Even in the midst of that pain. That's why James can say, consider it pure joy when you face trials. Because God's in it. God's got a purpose in it. He's working something out. The perseverance of because I think it's in times of suffering that we hold on to Jesus like no other time in our lives. Isn't that your experience? Isn't that when you find yourself most close to Jesus when there's nowhere else to go? You like yourself in the Lord in the face of suffering. <coughs> Pain brings us to the end of our forces. Standing strong in the face of adversity forces us to rely on someone else. A strength outside of ourselves. In times of trouble, we just go deeper into our relationship with God. That's the story of so many Christian lives. I can't say I've felt myself particularly a victim of injustice, but Jane and I do know the experience of God working for good in and through our pain. After being married for five years, we decided we try for children, but almost immediately Jane fell very ill. And then for a further seven years the children that we wanted and hoped for, well, they just didn't come. Twelve years married, no kids, and we didn't understand what was going on. Our friends, they were having kids, and many of our friends had no time for God, and yet God was giving them kids. And it would have been easy to have been angry, to have fretted, it would have been easy to have been envious, to shake a fist at God even, to say, this isn't fair, we've been living for you and serving you, and this is how you treat us. No, what kept us sane, what grew us in our faith was, Lord, you have a purpose in this. And if your purpose for my life is to make me more like Jesus, then you can use this. The seven years of pain to make us more like Jesus. And as we drew near to God, we discovered He drew near to us. And it was in adversity that we delighted in the Lord more, I think, than in our happiest days. 
our most fulfilled days here on earth. Because we had nowhere else to go. God can do that. Continue to do good. Delight in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're delighting in him, then he will fill you with even greater joy in him. And that can come in the biggest trial. And even in the darkest days. Jerry Bridges, writing on this scene, puts it in these words. He says, He learns loudly before his sovereignty, trusts his wisdom, experience the consolation of his love. We begin to pass from knowing about God to knowing God himself in a personal and intimate way. That's what comes through pain, whether it's the pain of ill health, failed expectations or of opposition and persecution from the world. Trust in the Lord. Continue to do good. Delight in Him. And then commit your future to Him too. Do you see that verse 5? Commit your ways to the Lord. As we learn to trust God, so we give Him our future. The word for commit here, commit your ways to the Lord, the word commit here means roll up your ways. You know like a sleeping bag, you know one of those sleeping bags, you have to roll it up really tightly to get it into the bag. Roll it up. Stuff it in the bag. Give it to the Lord. So all of your anxieties, all of your stresses, all of your feelings of despair, of injustice, anger, resentment, jealousy, envy, roll them up. Put them in the bag. Give them to the Lord. That's what it says. Commit your ways. Roll them up. Commit all of your ways, all of your feelings to the Lord. And we may well struggle. Many questions may go unanswered. As I'm sure would be the case for many who are experiencing not just opposition but imprisonments just because they love Jesus around the world today. And we have to roll them up and give them to the Lord. Jerry Bridges again. He says, for many years of my pilgrimage of seeking to trust God at all times, I was a prisoner to my feelings. I mistakenly thought that I couldn't trust God unless I felt like trusting Him, which I almost never did in times of adversity. Now I'm learning that trusting God is first of all a matter of the will, and not dependent on my feelings. I choose to trust God, and my feelings eventually follow. So I trust God for what has happened to me. And then I commit my ways to him by trusting the Lord for what will happen to me. All the unknown fears and anxieties and worries. I commit my way to the Lord, verse 5, and trust him for all that he will do. Trust the Lord by doing good, taking delight in the Lord, committing my ways to the Lord. And then fourthly, believing that my reward will one day come. Verse 6, He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. How can you sing? How can your heart sing in times of trouble? Because we know that there is a day coming when the Lord will give us our reward. There is a judgment day, and that means that when Jesus comes and judges, it will be the destruction of the wicked and the triumph of righteousness. Um, 
obviously the PowerPoint is working this morning, so there was a passage. I do want us to look at this. Would you put your notice sheet just in uh, the Psalms in terms of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1? And this is your hope, Christian. And if you're not sure where that might be in the Bible, page 1189, page 1189. Perhaps a day is coming when those who were wicked turn 
find Jesus Christ to be an all-sufficient saviour. Well, some of the greatest films all start with the ending. The, uh, if you want a trivia question, you can quiz each other. What films have you seen which begin at the end? Citizen Kane begins with the end. Forrest Gump. Annie Hall. Reservoir Dogs. It's quite a different experience watching a film where it begins at the end because you already kind of know where it's going. But you watch it because you want to see how it's going to get films that begin at the end. Well, if you're a Christian, you begin at the end. You know a day is coming when the Lord Jesus will come and his righteous rule will be over all the earth. And every act of injustice will be no more. You know the end. And what you're doing now is living in the middle. As we await that end and trust that that end will come. As a Christian, you sort of live life backwards in that way. You start at the end and then go back to the beginning and walk to the end. We know the outcome. That's what enables you to stand in the present. And the key to singing this song during a time of injustice is knowing it won't always be this way. And even now in the midst of this, God has the most amazing purpose to purify me and to make me more like Jesus. And who knows, even see others want for Christ through me. And if you have any doubts that this end is coming, you need only look at the life of Jesus, whose life in one sense is a, is a miniature of the whole story. The innocent one, the righteous one, who was opposed by those committed to evil, who suffered the ultimate injustice, who, despite being an innocent man, was crucified and treated as a criminal. And Peter says to the crowds in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. That's the ultimate injustice. And yet, what did God do? God intervened to bring justice by raising Jesus from the dead. Peter goes on, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has already shown you that he's the God of justice. And he'll do it again. What God did for one man in the middle of history, he will do for you and for me, and for all those who are holding on to him. Let's pray. Trust in the Lord and do good. Delight in the Lord. Commit your ways to the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Almighty God and Father in heaven, thank you for revealing to us the end from the beginning. Thank you for showing us where this world is heading so that we might live wisely and well as your children now. Keep us, we pray, from fretting, from envy, from anxiety, and in a world of injustice, 
May we, through the eyes of faith, hold on to you and trust you and delight in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.